welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey church, well we are in a series right now called Love is Greater. And we are basing our whole journey on this premise that um, love is the thing that would be worth all of our energy, all of our focus in the year ahead. And we're basing that on not just kind of our own novel idea, but 2,000 years ago, a statement, an argument that was made um, by a, um, a first century follower of Jesus to a new young church. It was written probably around 48 AD. It was the Apostle Paul, and he made this argument that even if you're not a person of faith or you've never read the Bible before, you would say, yeah, I think that's true. His point is that love is greater than everything and therefore worth all of our energy and focus because everything else is nothing if you don't have love. If you don't have love, everything else is nothing. Therefore, love is greater than everything. Now, as I said, even if you've never read the Bible before, we talked the last couple of weeks to say, we kind of know this is true, that it's possible to have fame and success and wealth and, and even virtue and even great faith to be a, considered a very spiritual person or a mature person or an admirable person. But if on the inside or in the relationships you have in your life or the people closest to you say, yeah, you didn't have love or you, you were unloving as you pursued your faith or as you pursued greatness or as you pursued success or as you produced, pursued academic achievement, they would say, and we, people often people say at the end of their lives, uh, or maybe some of you who are looking where more of your years are behind you, you're saying, yeah, anything that it remains that's loving is worth it. Everything else wasn't worth it if I have, had to sacrifice love to get it. So we could all go, yeah, that makes sense. That would be great. That's worth um, pursuing. Um, but then what is love? And why does it seem so hard to do, to practice it. Um, and so we're spending these eight weeks defining from uh, this chapter, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, uh, and that churches around the world have been reading since then, on explaining in a deep way, beyond just kind of feeling or sentiment or an idea, what is love really? What does it look like? But I want to camp out today a little bit on like uh, one of the definitions, why is it so hard to love? Why does it seem so difficult to love? Well, one of the answers to that question, there may be many answers to that question, but I would say that every generation of people, every culture of people needs to recognize that the time they are living in in history, where they are living in the part of the world that they live, will present certain unique obstacles or challenges to actually pursuing and becoming people of love. And I want to submit to you kind of three factors, if you just stay with me, that mark what it means to be uh, someone living in the 21st century in Canada. Um, three things, I'm just, if you're a history or a techno nerd, you're going to love this. Otherwise, just stay with me because it's worth it. And as I explain, you'll be like, yeah, that's true. On what presents such an obstacle for us in learning to love? The first one is this. David Bosch, uh, who's an author and a theologian, observed that in the, in the medieval time period, and that's between the 5th century and the 15th century, he said that people understood their lives, you can see these blocks, as sort of um, uh, the, not necessarily hierarchy, but like the way that they understood the world was God, church, government, 
themselves as people, and then plants, animals, and objects that they sort of had mastery over. And he said for those um, uh, 10 centuries, people understood their sense of being, um, their sense of accountability and responsibility, that God was overall, and that the church was this significant sort of voice and presence and community in their lives, and then kings and nobles and government were a part of the structure and authority, and then the self, and then plants, animals, and objects over which people ruled. And he said, over time, the Renaissance and the French Revolution, the American Revolution, um, you know, the place of the church, he said, you know, kind of got, got disappeared. And maybe we can argue the church lost, that was its own fault in terms of the way it led and the way it used authority and people thought it was oppressive or basically um, looking out for itself. And so that sort of disappeared in those structures and people began to trust more in kings and nobles and, and government structures and saying, well, those are the things. And then with the scientific revolution of the dawn of science, People say, well, no, God's really not a factor. God doesn't even exist. Like, that's not an authority structure in our lives. And then, you know, sort of with the Enlightenment movement and education, human progress, and all of the human authority structures and education and science and all, the, those are the things we can trust in. Well, then World War I, World War II, and we realize, well, people and governments, they're going to fail us too, and we still have that mentality. And what that left people with, Bosch argued, was a sense of self-autonomy, self-authority, self-direction, and looking to plants, animals, and objects for validation and meaning. He said, that's, that's, we have to realize that's what we're living in right now. That's one of the key factors, this orientation and understanding of self-government, self-authority, self-autonomy is one of the things that it means to be alive in the 21st century. That's factor number one. Factor number two, you live in North America. North America itself, as a continent, as a country, and the countries we were in were settled on this by this idea that you could come to this place and pursue um, your dreams, and you could make it big. And and what that meant was that as an the and and if you look at the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada and the Declaration of Independence in the United States, and the reason the United States matters to us as we think about it is a lot of the media and products and goods and services and just our proximity to their economy and uh, access to their and influenced by their media. These two things are all. We're all connected and shaped by that. The, the Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms, the Declaration of Independence, which says, you know, each person has the ability to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, is that America, North America, Canada, in a sense, the DNA of, a, is the, of the country is built on personal rights and freedoms. Personal rights and freedoms are not just something we value. They are in our DNA. They're almost the most important thing we value. And that's what it means to be Canadian. That's what it means to be North American. And so they, you not only have, you know, the, the, the onset of self-government, but also living in a nation, a country, we're saying the pursuit and achievement of your dreams, you do you, you can be whatever you want to be, nobody should stand in your way, there shouldn't be any obstacles for you achieving self-actualization, fulfillment, success, however you define that, that is the ultimate goal and ultimate value. You can be whatever you want to be, that is what our, it's not just a value, it is the underpinning foundation that our continent is built on. And interestingly, the faith that was a part of North America's founding was Christian faith. And here's the interesting thing. Many of us as Christians would still say, oh yeah, we have that God piece in it, but it's actually so tied and fused to the self and our understanding of self. So that people would say, well, God would never ask me to do something that would make me unhappy. God would never ask me to do something that's difficult. Why? Because self ultimately is the highest form of government. And somehow I have a faith and a that is fused into that, that my understanding of my faith is really self-oriented as well. And that's factor number two. Factor number three is the iPhone 6. You're like, iPhone 6? The 12 is out, man. Stay with me. No, no. 
the iPhone 6, if you actually think about it, okay, 1969, they uh, put a man on the moon. And not only was that an incredible achievement, there was the Apollo 11 mission, not only was the mission a success, it was an incredible thing to have a person on the moon, but that whole flight, both the shuttle to and returning to Earth, was managed by computers for the first time ever. And one of the computers involved in that was by IBM, they called it the 75er. It was a $3.5 million computer, and it was the size of a car. Okay, and that computer was instrumental, one of the instrumental computers in landing a person on the moon. The iPhone 6, which now many of you have given to the eight-year-olds in your house, um, has more computing power, has the, has the ability, the computing power, to commandeer 120 million shuttles at the same time. <laughs> That's the amount of computing power that, it, power that is in an iPhone 6, and it's available for $100, a few hundred dollars, not 3.5, and it is in the hands of individuals, and almost every eight-year-old in North America knows how to work it which means that technology has given more power to the individual than ever before. Okay, so that's our three factors that are setting this up, okay? Not only are we a people in a community that understand ourselves primarily as self-governed, self-directed people, and that other things exist for our mastery and pleasure. Secondly, we are part of a continent whose very DNA is built on the pursuit of individual rights and freedoms. And now we are living in the technological revolution that has put more power in our hands than ever before. And because of that, this by itself presents an enormous obstacle for us to be able to understand and become people of love. And yet it's something we say, yeah, but actually those are the things that we value most. That's the thing we would want when we die, to be able to say in our dying hours that we are surrounded by loving relationships, that we have been people of love, that that would be most valuable. And yet if we want to pursue that, even in this year ahead, never mind at the end of our lives, how are we going to overcome this obstacle of self, of independence, of self-orientation that it seems to be so wired into us, not just from several hundred years of history, but even uh, empowered by technology that's in our hands. And don't get me wrong, um, individual rights and freedoms are a good thing. There's many good and noble things that have come out of valuing the individual. There's many good things that have come out of technology, and yet they present an obstacle to love. And so we started actually this last week, right, saying that pride is one of the, is the biggest obstacle to love because pride is an obsession with self. But today, as we read scripture and as we continue to go through the Apostle Paul's description of what love is, I want you to listen to these two little words that are a further description of love that help us understand how are we going to overcome this obstacle of self-autonomy and self-seeking that is in front of us all the time. So have a listen. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. So I wonder if you heard those two little words, love is patient and love is kind. 
Now, you may think, oh, love is patient, love is kind. They, they sound like words that you would find in like a children's book. Like maybe even there's a children's book and there's two little characters and one's purple and one's green and one's called patient and one's called kindness and they go around making everybody's lives happy, right? It sounds like, oh yeah, patient. It sounds like something that would uh, be on your elementary school board outside your school, you know, the place you used to go to school at, but now sometimes you just drive by, but you're not allowed to drive by anymore because you're at home. You'd see, oh, March is patience and kindness month, right? Like they seem like, kind of very ordinary and maybe weak words, and yet they are so powerful. They are so key in understanding how to overcome this obstacle of self-autonomy and self-orientation, and yet they are incredibly difficult to practice. And so we want to kind of unpack this and say, okay, what what do these actually mean? Well, the first description of the, the love is patient, we think of the word patient, it, it, we think, okay, like just, you know, not, not losing your uh, patience while you're waiting in line. Like some, you know, just taking the time to wait in line. Like that would be a one-liner about patience. Or, you know, just not blowing your top, you know, when something goes uh, the way you didn't, didn't go the way you wanted it to go. But remember, this is, a, this is a passage about relationships and what does it mean to love? What does patience look like in the context of loving others? And one pastor said it this way, and I think it's such a good description. He said, patience is being willing to go at the other person's pace. Patience is being willing to go at the other person's pace. You know, like we, we think this isn't just about like time, you know, like, oh, I, I should try to be patient and be able to wait. Being able to go at the other person's pace is recognizing that a lot of the impatience we feel is because people aren't moving at the speed that we need them to. We're depending on them for something or they're uh, getting in the way of something we need to get done. They're not moving fast enough or they're not getting their stuff together. You know, they're constantly struggling with the same things or how long could they be sick for? Or how long could they be, um, you know, dealing with depression for? Or how long could they be struggling? Why is this taking so long? They're, they're moving at a pace that is different than ours. That's frustrating for us. We're not, we, we, understand, we don't understand why they keep getting into the same messes. There's a repetition to their pace of life that it's not just about how fast they do things or how fast they drive, but about the way they are. And we could even think about it in terms of their pace of the way that they think, right? That we have an impatience or a frustration with people who think differently than us. And that's certainly in these days as we've debated things like vaccines and politics or whatever, there's a level of frustration or impatience we have with others who seem to hold a view or a way that are thinking that is different than our own. We're not, we're not willing or we're frustrated to go at their pace. And why is that? Why does it produce frustration in us? Well, ultimately because impatience and, and people going at their own pace ultimately is because they are blocking our goals. We have things we want to get done, tasks we need to get done, stuff we need to get done, jobs we have or assignments or group work or a, a goal or a direction in our lives that we are heading for that is important and valuable to us and other people when they fail, when they trip and fall, or when we're depending on them or when they continue to struggle or when they think differently than us, that they're opposing us, we are frustrated at them because in that moment we are getting angry and upset because why? They are blocking our goals. And I know this sounds like sort of a little bit of, a, of an innocuous statement, but as it may understand, yeah, that's the source of frustration I have with a lot of people. Why? Because the truth is, I am not thinking primarily about them. I am impatient because my goals are important to me, and they, as a result of their pace, 
uh, or they're not keeping up, or they're not able to do what they're, or they're stuck where they are, it is blocking my goals, and therefore I am getting frustrated with them. And see, this is where our culture gets in the way of our ability to love. Because if patience is being willing to go at the pace of the other, how can I, when I'm being told constantly, hey, you do you, pursue your dreams, don't let anyone hold you back. You know, you can be all that you want to be and achieve your success and chart your own path and the captain of your soul and all of that stuff. And that's what I'm being told. And that's the air that I'm breathing in, the water that I'm swimming in. Well, then when I'm trying to pursue my goals and other people are not helping me or they're supposed to do something to be a part of it, or I'm linked to them somehow because I'm married to them or I'm parenting them or I'm studying with them or I'm working with them or they're working for me or I'm working for them. And I, they are doing things or have a pace that's not, I'm frustrated at them because I can't get where I need to go. And so patience is actually about coming to the place where if this is right love in the context of relationships, is not just somehow trying to not lose it on them. <laughs> you know, because we can, remember we said we can be virtuous, like look good, self-controlled, patient on the outside, but inside we don't have love. So true love is actually saying, okay, this isn't just about tolerating people like that or enduring that or somehow getting through it without um, you know, screaming at them, letting them know I want to kill them on the inside. It's actually saying, what does it mean to prioritize people over tasks? That not, people don't exist for, to help me achieve my goals, but in fact, how do I prioritize people or relationships over task because that's what it means to be patient, to go at their pace. I am valuing and appreciating and valuing them over my agenda and my goals. What does this actually look like? How, how do you do that? Well, it's like if you think about like the goals you have of keeping a clean house, you can have a really clean house, but children who feel like they're soldiers or who they're just dirty objects to be moved out of the way and made sure that are blocking you from having a clean house. Or you can have a semi-clean house or maybe even a dirty house, but you have children who are learning the value of working alongside you and who have, you have a, a relationship that is intact, that is loving with them. And we say, okay, okay, that's easy to think about in the context of a home and getting stuff done, but what about in, in the cold, hard world of work? Well, I remember in, uh, in my old career in marketing and I had a job and I, I came in, it was a new job and I had a team that I inherited. And one of the people on that team in the first couple of weeks just said some things and did some things that I thought were incredibly unprofessional, uh, immature, inappropriate. I remember coming home and saying to Jen, like, if I was in my old work, like this person would be fired. They wouldn't last a week. And the frustration that I had as I continued to mount as we would, you know, and, and any, he was kind of resistant to any feedback I would give on that. And our interactions were getting worse and worse because I was growing impatient at where he was at and where he was clearly not getting to. And um, the Holy Spirit, I mean, Jen uh, said to me, you know, you're probably making this worse by how you're responding. And I realized like, I was being impatient. I wanted him to get to a certain place. I expected him to be at a certain place. I expected a certain, and it wasn't there. And I was adding to it and I thought, okay, this could go either really badly, really quickly, or I need to begin to change. And so as I began to shift and say, okay, why is he, where is he at, where he's at? What are the things that are motivating him? How does he think? I don't even really know him that well. And I began to get to know him and try to understand him more and really try to, in a sense, go at his pace or come to where he was. And it was a beautiful thing happened. First of all, my level of anxiety and frustration began to go down and I began to focus more on him than the task and the goals that I had with work, even though he's on my team. And he began to grow. He began to rise to the occasion and, and become more uh, efficient and effective in what he was doing. Now, here's the thing. 
in the long run, we ended up having to part ways. I did have to let him go, not because he had, you know, kind of done something wrong or whatever. He had accomplished a lot, but he got to a place where he wasn't going to get any further where he was. But in that moment, when I sat across from the table for him, I could honestly say in my heart, I knew I was doing, I had done the best I could for him and that this was even a good decision for him. And he's gone on to have a, a great career in marketing and in leadership. And, and that's just one of those things where like in that moment where I'm frustrated because I need to get, and this person is now just becoming someone who's an obstacle to that, impatience rises up. And I actually begin to say, okay, how do I get to where he is and start to value him as a person over the tasks that we're supposed to be doing? That's when we actually learn to love and impatience begins to subside in our hearts. Our goals need to be about people, not things and tasks. That's sort of, if you will, kind of the, the passive side of this, and the other, which is uh, patience, like learning to go at the pace of the other. The other side is more active, and that's the word kindness. And one person described kindness like this, lending your strength to someone who needs it. This is the active side of patience, not just learning, slowing down to go their pace and being willing to prioritize them over task, but then actually kindness is using whatever strength, wealth, ability, opportunity we have to those who need it, to those who are weak, to those who are struggling, to those who are stuck, to those who are asking for help, to those who are not able to keep up. This is what kindness is. And again, we live in a culture that says, no, like weakness is something to be gotten rid of. Weakness is something to be exploited as you kind of continue to move on your path, you know, survival of the fittest. In fact, you're being taught in your schools and you know that, yeah, no, that we just are products of time and chance. And in fact, survival of the fittest, the strong, eliminating the weaker, that's how we got to where we are. And yet March is kindness month. How do those two things fit together? They don't. Only if we actually value people as made in the image of God, as valuable and of themselves, and we say, wait, I'm actually meant to use what I have to actually strengthen and help and lift up others. Now, you might say, okay, like Paul didn't understand the culture we were living in. Well, in a sense, Paul's culture 2,000 years ago was different in many ways, but in many ways it was the same thing. It was a culture that valued strength that valued, um, that thought that poverty or sickness or weakness was something people deserved and something to be avoided. And you let the poor stay poor and you let the sick stay sick and you let those who are suffering and struggling some sort of karma, they're trying to pay off some debt that they owe to the universe or to their past ancestors, their father and mothers must have sinned and so now they deserve it. Weakness, poverty, need is not something to be alleviated. Well, why did Paul say this to the church? and to every church since then and every person who's ever read that letter, that kindness is actually using your power and lending strength to those who are weak and who are poor and who are suffering. Well, he actually answers that question in another letter he wrote when he describes the one, the God who made us. He said, God himself, and this is how he describes him, the riches of God's kindness and patience. And friends, this is the game changer for us as people of faith as we understand, well, how could we do this? How could we actually live like this as people who are willing to go at the pace of the other person, to come to where they are and to use our strength to lend it to those who need it? Because that's exactly how God is towards us. Do you know the scriptures say that God himself has slowed down to our pace 
And do you know what that means? Well, we just celebrated a, a, a month ago at Christmas. God becoming one of us, God actually embracing the limitations of humanity, choosing to put flesh and skin on and to be bound by the limits of humanity and the brokenness of humanity is God saying, there's, as, you, as we've heard it said many times at our church, there's no stairway up to heaven where God says, you fix where you are. You get up to my pace. You get up to my speed. No, God has come down to our level and has come to where we are by becoming one of us, to speak to us with words that we could understand, to show us a picture of who he is, is to actually teach and eat with and touch and live with people. This is what God has done. It is actually an incredible act of patience of going at the pace of those he loved. God has done that for us. That's what he did. And then, and which is why no surprise when you read the gospels and the life of Jesus, he was always in a sense moving at a very slow pace. Why? So that he could prioritize people over tasks. And if we, can we just say this? Jesus had the most important job in the world. I know your job is important. I know my job is important. Everybody's job is important. But Jesus was coming to save the world. If any job, anybody's task was more important, it was Jesus. And yet he continues to prioritize people. Why? Because people were the goal. And so you continually see Jesus stopping on his way to eat, to talk, to look in the eye, to touch, to heal, to teach, to restore. This is God showing the riches of his patience to us. And then also the riches of his kindness where God lends his strength to us. One of the most incredible things Jesus ever said, which I don't, you know, if you've never heard it or maybe heard me gloss over it and make it how profound it is. He said to his disciples, I did not come, even though I am Lord and master, I did not come to be served by you. He said, that's how all the lords and masters of this world do it. They, they see others as people who exist to strengthen them, to lend them their wealth and strength. That's what people in authority, he said, that's the advantage they get. He said, not so with you because I am here to serve you. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus described his mission, to lend his strength, his healing, his wisdom, his life, his power, his love to us who were in need not to be served by us. That, that's not the most profound statement on the nature and the character of God. I don't know. There's no God like that. That is how God has been towards us. And the scriptures say we are made in his image. And therefore, not only are we loved by a God who shows patience and kindness, not only are we called as we follow him to be people of patience and kindness, we have been given the power of his life to be able to do it. And that's amazing. So what does that mean? Where do we go from here? Well, I would say to you that it begins with patience because you're not ever going to want to even stop to lend someone your strength if you're not actually first slowed down to their pace, to where they are. And if I can say it this way, to go their pace, you need to stand in their place. To go their pace, you need to stand in their place to get to where they are. That's what patience means, to come to their level, to get to where they are. And I want you to listen to just a short story of somebody who did that. Dr. Paul Brand was a, a pioneering surgeon in the area of leprosy research and, and healing. And he was someone who really understood that it was not just about the skin tissues, but about nerves. And he was given so many awards, both by the queen in, in England, uh, where he um, uh, was recognized and practiced, but also in America. But he spent most of his time in India in small villages, where, which was his birthplace. 
in, in Tamil Nadu in India was his birthplace and where he grew up with his parents and where he began to practice uh, medicine with uh, lepers because there were millions of lepers in India. <clears throat> and here's what one of his friends said as an observation about Dr. Paul Brand in his book as he wrote about him. I visited Sadan, another former patient of Dr. Brand's. He, that's Sadan, looked like a miniature version of Gandhi, skinny, balding, with thick spectacles, perched cross-legged on the edge of a bed. The door to his modest apartment was open and a few small birds flew in and out. A mangy dog lounged on the step. Sadan showed me his feet, which ended in smooth rounded stumps instead of toes because of leprosy. I met the brands, he said, too late to save these. That's Paul and his wife. But they gave me shoes that let me walk. In a high-pitched sing-song voice, Sadan told me wrenching stories of past rejection. The classmates who made fun of him in school, all because of his disease. The driver who forcibly threw him off a public bus. The many employers who refused to hire him despite his training and talent. The hospitals that turned him away with a brisk, we don't treat lepers here. When I got to Volor, that was the village where the brands were, I spent the night on the brands' porch because I had nowhere else to go, said Sadan. That was unheard of for a person of leprosy back then. I can still remember when Dr. Brand took my infected, bleeding feet in his hands. I had been to many doctors. A few had examined my hands and feet from a distance, but Dr. Paul and Margaret were the first medical workers who dared to touch me. I had nearly forgotten what human touch felt like. Even more impressive, they let me stay in their house that night, and this was when even health workers were terrified of leprosy. Sadan then recounted the elaborate sequence of medical procedures, tendon transfers, nerve strippings, toe amputations, and cataract removal performed by the brands. By transferring tendons to his fingers, they made it possible for him to write again. And now he kept accounts for a program that gave free leprosy care through 53 mobile clinics. And this is what the writer says, Paul Brand saw his chief contribution as one he had not studied medical school, to join with his patient as a partner in the task of restoring dignity to a broken spirit. As Paul Brand said, we are treating a person not a disease. Friends, what a beautiful, inspiring picture of what it means to come to where someone is at, to go their place, to stand in their place. Now that's something beautiful and inspiring for someone who's in the medical profession and dealing with lepers, but who understood his primary goal, what was relationships, not the task. It is to join with the person in the restoration of their whole selves, not just treat the disease. And so what does that mean for you and I as we try to um, go people's play, pace and stand in their place? First thing I would say to you, some of us just need to admit in a situation, in an interaction or relationship, I'm angry, frustrated, upset with them because they are blocking my goals. <laughs> this is something that's actually been helpful for me to realize. Why am I upset? Well, it's not, I can blame it all on them. Well, they're not doing this and how come they always and they're never and they think, you know, how could they be so stubborn? Or, no, it's like, you know what? I'm upset because they're blocking my goals which actually leads us to a more deeper confession at this moment, my goal is more important to me than they are. That's a hard one to admit. And yet that's true. It's in all of us. That in this moment, the reason I'm upset is because my goal is more important to me than they are. Which means what I need to do is ask, how can I better understand where 
they are at. To go their pace, you need to stand in their place. So how can I better understand their place? How can I actually better understand where they are at? Friends, I know this is incredibly hard to do. It fights every fiber in our being because of, like I said, all of the reasons why this is such an obstacle to think this way. But I want to leave you this with this thought. It's one thing, right, to imagine the end of our lives and to think and to feel that we had no regrets because we prioritized people over tasks, that our lives were filled with not all the stuff we bought or the achievements we gained, but the people we loved. It's one thing to, to feel that for ourselves. But man, it is a whole other level of blessing to think that someone else at the end of our life might say that about us. And so I just want to bless you. I want to bless you with the perspective to say, yes, this is the most valuable thing. This is why people are more important than tasks, that at the end of my life, not only would I be able to say that I loved well, but other people would say that about me.